Hey everyone, welcome back to the Wisdom Collective. My name is Adam Kral and I am on today with Raphael Struve. Raphael, you've been putting together a phenomenal show. I've been trying to tell everyone I talked to about it, honestly, called The State of Venezuela. Um, and I've been trying to tell everyone about it because it, it feels, uh, these are kind of overwrought terms right now, but it feels important and you're doing amazing work. And, and, and honestly, just uh, giving us a little bit of what's going on in Venezuela from, for me, for an English speaker, it feels like the only resource I have at times for it. So, um, yeah, I'm learning so much. You're doing a multivariate analysis, which is great because oftentimes what we get from any foreign country is a univariate analysis. And so I appreciate what you're doing. So thank you on the front end of this. But I want you to introduce yourself. Uh, you have this show. Why did you start it? When did you start it? Tell people about what the show is all about. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, Adam, thank you so much for having me. This is my first interview for anything ever. So this is a very exciting prospect for me. So yeah, as, um, as you might imagine, I am myself Venezuelan, although the accent might tell a different story. The reason for that is because I was born in the United States, namely Houston, Texas. And fun fact, as I was telling you before the show, Houston, Texas is home to the second largest Venezuelan community in the country after Miami. A lot of people know Miami being as sort of like this Hispanic enclave for, um, for refugees and exiles of countries like Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela. But Houston has well over 70,000, I believe now, in, of, uh, of Venezuelans. So that and do you, do you want to, what's the, what's the reason for that? Is that when did your family come here and what's the reason for that? So interestingly enough, Adam, we were part of that small group of Venezuelans that made it before the exodus. Well, there are really two, um, two points of migration we can say, and the latter one we'll touch on later because that speaks to the larger humanitarian crisis that the country is facing. The first one was more political persecution, and that was in 2003. So a lot of people know Venezuela's history uh, during the Hugo Chavez era in which there was a coup uh, that involved the military trying to oust him. A little after that, there was an oil strike basically um, workers from the state-owned oil company called PDVSA, PDVSA, who were upset at the early signs of mismanagement that included Chavez basically sacking uh, the company's top oil executives to bring in ideologues, academic ideologues who had like this left-leaning bent to advance what Chavez called 21st century socialism. But that came at the expense of the operational efficiency of the country. So there were strikes that lasted about six months. They were, uh, they were put to rest and sort of as a way of lashing out against these workers and to ensure that that would never happen again, Chavez blacklisted about 160,000 employees of the company and they were forced to leave because not only were they not allowed to work for the company itself, but for any company pertaining to the oil yeah. and gas industry in Venezuela. So they figured, okay, if I can't work there, where else can I provide my, my services? And I guess the next best option for them was the oil and gas or energy capital of the world, that being Houston, Texas. And so they all came here, yeah. told their friends and family, and you know, the rest is history. No, you know, there's a little well, <laughs> uh, metaphor, but there's a pipeline that developed there, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No yeah. pun intended. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So, so your family was a part of one of those migrations, and we'll get into the second one uh, a bit later, but um, like you said, but you started this show called The State of Venezuela. 
um, what is it all about and, and why are you trying to tell this story um, in, in the way that you are? Um, give people an idea of the format and everything, but also why you're doing this. Sure. So my background is in international affairs. I did my, I completed my undergraduate studies in political science and international relations. From there, I did a master's in global affairs and I was doing my thesis on Venezuela because the, the intensity of my studies sort of uh, coincided with the worsening of the crisis in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And there were certain things that I was noticing. Number one, that it wasn't getting a lot of coverage in English. I mean, it was in spurts whenever, you know, the numbers of protesters was amassing in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. That's when it was almost impossible to ignore. But as the situation became more complex, it necessitated a further explanation that unfortunately I wasn't seeing from any major media outlets. And I think some of them were just complacent in saying, you know, I just am, I don't want to do the homework, we could say, because it's a lot of homework to understand how we got to where we are now. But then you had more complicit outlets. Um, some, I don't want to give it too much of an ideological bend, but unfortunately that's just what it is. There were a lot of apologists, especially in Hollywood, like the Oliver Stones of the world, Danny yeah. Glovers, who they, they romanticized this idea of 21st century socialism that worked really well uh, during the first 10 years of Chavez's presidency, but that's because he was doing it at a time when oil prices peaked. When Chavez came in in 1999, oil prices were sitting at around $19. But then prior to his death in, tw in 2012, uh, he died in 2013, but in 2012 is when it reached its peak, oil prices were close to $120 a barrel. So just bananas. Yeah. yeah. It, it was bananas. And yeah. so you would think, all right, well, let's. Uh, a competent administration or country would do what any you know developed country would do, which is um, invest in infrastructure, invest in your people, invest in the advancement of the country and other manufacturing sectors to ensure that you're a um, a country that's not dependent on oil. But what right. happened is there's no long game otherwise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so what happened is we actually ended up becoming even more dependent on oil. Upwards to 90% of the country was dependent on oil exports. And I don't know if wow. it's whether or not they thought the oil price would never go away, but whatever the case was, a lot of money was being was flowing into PDVSA, but PDVSA was being used as a money laundering machine for other illicit activities that were going on in the country. At the same time, Chavez was consolidating his rule by a, a, a couple of, a, a lot of different ways. Number one, in 2004, there was a referendum to get him out of power and mm. all signatories to try and oust him out like citizens, they were blacklisted. Basically, they had their names publicized. And if you were a state employee who said, no, I want him out, then you couldn't find work. So a lot of people to avoid political persecution had to leave the country in 2004. And this blacklisting, it is your, it tends to be, if I may be misunderstanding, misinterpreting, but it's, you're oftentimes blacklisted as a terrorist, correct? You, you're an enemy of the state, so to speak. Sort of. Is that um, fair? Okay. Well, yeah. before, before it wasn't so. However, now their, their laws, I'm trying to translate in English here, but basically they're, they're laws that are designed to curtail free speech uh, the best example I can give you actually was just uh, last year. There is a um, there's an orchestra 
that is so the, the project is subsidized by the state and so it's basically like an orchestra slash choir that is propped up by the state so it's a state-sponsored choir mm-hmm. and one of the girls who sings in that choir tweeted on um on Twitter, she, I think she was complaining about the um, the way that security forces were brutally suppressing protests. And she said, oh, I wish they would die themselves or something like that. And because of what she wrote, because it was dissent against the Maduro regime, Nicolas Maduro, of course, being uh, Chavez's successor, right, right. she was thrown in jail for 44 days. And this is a girl who's 17 years old with no right to trial, no legal representation, and she was eventually let out under the condition that she never speaks out against the government again. So it's like this manufactured silent obedient consent that slowly started seeping into the minds of Venezuelans who feel like if they can't protest, then they're psychologically conditioned to sort of accept this as the new norm. And that's been the case for at least the last decade. Yeah, so it's like a, more or less, a, you get enough of those anecdotal stories out there in the public and people will self-censor in like two seconds, right? Exactly. But the problem there, Adam, is um, like that, there are hundreds of other anecdotal stories that I can give you based on my own experience, based on family that I have but still in Venezuela, that um, for whatever reason, they end up not making it into major media outlets. And when they do, I often get one of two responses. Number one, first there was, uh, this really happened in waves, right? Number one is there is no crisis in Venezuela. Nothing Mm. wrong is going on in Venezuela. Now you can't say that anymore because, I mean, the New York Times is talking about it. The Washington Post is talking about it. Um, They're they're images that are just, they're impossible to ignore of people in the street scavenging for food. You have, and from a statistical standpoint, 80% of the country now lives in extreme poverty and 96% lives below the poverty line. Yeah, so yeah. We, we, get, we get through that, that first hump. So mm-hmm. then the, the, we can almost call them, I don't want to say the equivalent of, well, almost like the equivalent of Holocaust deniers or Armenian genocide deniers. They say, okay, yeah. well, if there is a crisis, it's the fault of the United States. That's, that's the biggest one that I get, yeah, which is yeah. the fact that, it's because of sanctions. Sanctions were imposed on, uh, on Venezuela. First, there were targeted sanctions by the, the Obama administration in, I want to say, 2015. Then there was a second round of sanctions that were, um, that were imposed by the Trump administration in 2017. And finally, sanctions imposed on the oil and gas industry at large in 2019. However, I always – and this is one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast uh, because – Sanctions did not cause the economic or humanitarian crisis in Venezuela because the conditions in Venezuela far preceded any implementation of sanctions. By 2016, a full year before, um, before any final financial or sectoral sanctions that hit the country, Venezuela's economy was already suffering hyperinflation at a rate of 800%. By the way, in 2018, that number hit 1 million, 1 million percent of hyperinflation. So the the currency at that point is worth nothing. And then between 2013 and 2016, food imports, because because of basically subsidy schemes and currency exchange controls, uh, the country became super dependent on uh, on imports from other countries. But those imports of food fell 71% and for medicine and for medicinal equipment 
dropping a, a similar number of 68%. And again, because of a massive brain drain and people leaving the country, there were no manufacturers to actually get the, the, the job done themselves. Also because um, Chavez and his successor Maduro Mm-hmm. expropriated thousands of businesses under the premise that they could do the jobs themselves, which of course they couldn't. So right. by the time sanctions were introduced, Venezuelans were already earning the minimum wage of only affording 56% of the calories that were necessary for a family of five. And over 2 million Venezuelans had already fled the country by this point. Today, 5.2 million Venezuelans have, less, have left in the past five years. And by year's end, if things don't change, the UN projects that it will be worse than, than Syria, meaning that we will have the worst refugee yeah. crisis in the world and we're not even going through a major war. And COVID so, is accelerating that? Is that part of it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And the problem there, Adam, is that because the um, these dire economic conditions exacerbated the collapse of the health system. Mm-hmm. The health system before was already having to deal with diseases that you don't that you can't find or, or that are almost unheard of in an Medieval advanced company stuff. like here. Exactly, yeah. like me- measles, mumps, um, and so you're talking about about hospitals that have no running water, that have no equipment like gloves, like uh, sterilizing equipment, none of that. And now they're having to confront a, um, a pandemic that they're in no way, shape, or form prepared to confront. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's like making an extremely bad problem extremely worse. So yeah. the less that this gets talked about, the more that it quietly becomes like a genocide. And it's important right. for me to talk about it in two, uh, for another reason, actually, because we haven't even gotten started on talking about the convergence of other interests in the country that are looking right. to plant their feet in the Western Hemisphere, namely Russia, Iran, China, and now Turkey. In varying capacities, they are propping up a dictatorship that long ago, without their interference, would have toppled. And in the case of Cuba, Cuba has thousands of intelligence agents that spy on soldiers and make sure that they're not trying to foment any sort of uh, insurrection, uprising against the dictatorship. So it's almost like this carefully crafted, um, carefully crafted and orchestrated plan to ensure that they have clamped down on every single exit strategy that an opposition or people in general would have to oust this guy. And so that's why we're in the situation we're in now. And we're going to get into a lot of that because it's a carefully crafted plan as far as I can tell, but it's not um, one manufactured or discovered in isolation. It has, like you said, plenty of foreign influence and plenty of iterations throughout history um, that are sort of helping it along, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to, I want to, Maybe this will help give some uh, firm up some direction for the conversation. I want to look at the, the kind of popular level, the journalists, the celebrity stuff that you talked about. I want to maybe put some whys behind some of this. Why would people do that? Why would on the geopolitical convergence that's happening, there is this sort of global fixation and influence on Venezuela. So why is that? On, on the one hand, like you said, who is that? But why is that? So I want to touch both of those. Sure. Um, and before we jump into those, um, I want to ask a question and make a comment. The, the question is, where are all these people migrating to? Like, what, what, so, it, or, you know, as the, like you said, this refugee thing is, it's legit and it was already primed before COVID, but it's only going to be accelerated with it, um, right. especially if they're already underprepared. So where's everyone going? What's going on? 
So for the most part, Adam, uh, since 2014, there's been this accelerated level of Venezuelan migration, and most of them are going to neighboring countries throughout the region. So the biggest one, the biggest recipient of, uh, of these refugees is Colombia. Right now, Colombia has, I think, about 1.2 million refugees. I could be wrong. I'm going to have to check those numbers later. But they have really borne the brunt of this uh, migration problem. The second most, I think, is Peru. Peru has about 750,000. That number could be higher now. Mm -hmm. And then Ecuador has about 500,000. These are numbers that I last checked were um, as up-to-date as far as 2019. Now, um, I think there are some that have reached the United States, but because a lot of these people are coming from uh, places of very, very low resources, they're they're not you know they're not flying, they're not making this trips. Some of them are making trips by car, but a lot of them are making the trip by land. So you have people, even children, by themselves walking thousands of miles. Yeah. Um, in very rare cases, but mostly hundreds of miles. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll sell all their possessions, whether it be a cell phone, a refrigerator, to be able to get a bus ticket, to be able to leave the country. And then they'll cross the bridge. Uh, there's a bridge in between Colombia and Venezuela called uh, Tienditas. And that bridge, for the most part, was open most of last year. And the images that I saw were harrowing. You had just people clumped in desperation trying to cross that bridge into Colombia. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what people would do actually, Adam, is they would go into Colombia to get food supplies and then come back because they need or yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, what they'll do is they'll they'll go into Colombia and they'll get whatever, you know, whatever cleaning or food supplies they can get from that country, then cross the bridge and go back um, in the evening or, or whenever the case may, may be, just because there's a, there's a massive shortage in Venezuela, but also because the, the price of these items rises so quickly in relation to hyperinflation. You know, uh, right. you, can, you can go to a supermarket in Venezuela and a price of chocolate might be, um, I don't know, Fifty thousand bolivares, which is, um, I believe, right now it would be about four dollars. But then, hours later, the price might increase. And because the average uh, minimum wage right now, or the the average wage is five dollars a month, you're talking about you know a pallet of ice cream or a pallet of or maybe a chicken breast eating up a month's worth of salary. Yeah, right. So people are desperate. People. That's that's really the. Um, the, the overwhelming or the overarching narrative of these thousands, well, now millions of refugees right. that are leaving the country, it's complete desperation. It's not about politics anymore. They just, you know, they, they need a place to eat or they need to eat in general because they're yeah. food insecure. Right now, at least over a third of the country doesn't have enough to provide for three meals a day. So that's why we're not seeing protests anymore also because their mindset has changed entirely. Just it's not survive. Yeah. Exactly. They're, they're yeah. now like, exactly. Like now they're, they're in survival mode is what you can say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And this gets to the comment I want to make, and this will help us transition to that's a, that's a really good kind of primer for just what is, what, where is Venezuela right now? Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and, but this gets to the comment I wanted to make as well, which will help us transition to sort of the, 
the versions of what's going on in Venezuela that we get that are so goofy and, and, and kind of washed and or spun sometimes. Yeah. I know people aren't going to shows like this to get their geopolitical opinions and stuff, but it shows how subtle and how powerful like um, the desire to have that kind of rose colored view, like you said, or this kind of romanticized view of Venezuela. I mean, the, uh, and I hope I'm not mixing up countries when I say this, but did that show Jack Ryan, the second season, did they talk, was it Venezuela, the country that was the focus? It was, yes. Remember? Okay. And that, that like bugged me out, dude. Cause yeah, I remember, yeah. So now I'm remembering it. It bugged me out because it was, it was in a tr very trope way. The show's just fun. It's like, and most people go to watch the show cause it's like kind of time, Tom Clancy vibe. It's like a yeah. laser gun show, blah, blah, blah. But it, it had this underlying narrative that was carrying the whole show, which was, Venezuela is what it is, it kind of a sympathy for the devil idea. Like Venezuela is only what it is because of this Western influence, you know, and because of these uh, various sanctions and various things that have happened. And, and that's such a popular show, man. <laughs> and that, that's, that might be more powerful than even uh, an article in the Times, let's say, because everyone's watching that, you know what I mean? Exactly. And that, that actually goes to, again, why I'm doing this podcast. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of institutions that have done really, really good job, like the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the CSIS, yeah, yeah. Brooking, the, the Brookings Institute, that have done really, really uh, good work in proving, A, that this is not the fault of sanctions, and B, that partly this is the fault of this sort of convergence of a criminal enterprise a syndicate really of different elements, like foreign el elements that are working to actively prop up this regime, like the ones I talked about, China, Russia, Cuba, Iran, now Turkey. Um, but you're right. The Unfortunately, Jack Ryan, I did see some of the show and I mean, it was good. I, I, I'm not going to take away from the production. And uh, my grandfather is a huge fan of Tom Clancy. Yeah. Um, so I tried to give it a chance. I really did. But um, for your listeners, if you want to get a good rebuttal from uh, it with respect to the show and how it accurately portrayed the situation of the country itself, I highly recommend you check out a video from the. I don't know if you're familiar, Adam, with Fee. The, the yeah, Fee that's what I was going to suggest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah go they ahead, did, dude. Yeah, yeah. So they did a really good job of showing where they felt where, where they falter in accurately explaining what's going on which is in a sense fine because it is hollywood but then again it is hollywood so yeah. on the one hand you're omitting certain information but you're doing so also to almost cover for the fault of a um of an ideology that is very much to blame for the economic collapse of the country yeah so let's get into the i mean I try to steer clear as much as I can at reading people's minds, but as far as you can tell, why in the world uh, does this happen? Because it's not, Jack Ryan, for example, it's not just functioning as an alternate reality. It is, but it's not. It is, it's intentionally using some common narratives. It made a mm -hmm. choice, basically. It chose right. a narrative. And so it wasn't just an alternate reality. So um, why why would shows do that? Why do journalists do this? Because that's that's, the reason why I'm recommending your show to so many people, like you said, is because it's one of the only English speaking places I can see. You mentioned earlier, uh, essentially this silent genocide that's happening and people always say things like never again, right? When they talk about the actual, like the Holocaust. Right. And we have things going on right now with Uyghurs in China and, and all sorts of humanitarian crises around the world and what's going on in Venezuela. 
and we all sort of pat ourselves on the back and say never again it's like you guys it's literally happening like the mm-hmm. versions of it are happening it may not be the same it may not be um as i don't want to like rank order like best best better worse but it's happening right like it's genuinely yeah. happening and we are fairly silent about it not just silent about it but there's some spin going on why why is that happening why are these journalists doing this when when they do it it's not all all of it right i'm not trying to be sure. too cataclysmic but it, it is happening. So like, why is it? Why do they do that? What's going on there? Well, Adam, I think uh, you make a really good point. And I think it goes to the larger point of really the sort of gaslighting that we see in journalism today in general. Um, why is it that we see NBA players advocating for equality when they were, they're receiving funds from a country that is committing genocide of the Uyghurs yeah. that are actively suppressing the freedom of Hong Kong when they had agreed to, um, to not, touch or infringe on their uh, their Western legal system until 2050, but there they are doing it regardless. Why is it that we don't see the Democratic Party talking about 84, 85 nights of violent riots in Portland, Oregon, and instead referring to them as peaceful protesters? It all goes back to the same line, I believe, of trying to cover for something or for someone. Um, I tried not to attribute to na- to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. Yeah. But yeah. in some instances, it's almost like it's almost impossible to do so. And in the case of, I think your regular average Joe, I think that your average Joe gets their information, unfortunately, from uh, from journalists that have an ideological bend or have a, a reason to put that spin. Or they, um, they don't, they, you know, the, the story that they're getting is one of, yeah, just Western interference in Latin America. So when they have that pre-existing narrative, I understand where they're coming from. I really do. If that's where, if, if that's the place that they're coming from. However, if the signs are there and you choose not to to recognize really the evils of that, that have been committed in the past 20 years. We're talking about a series of egregious human rights abuses to the extent that the United Nations itself has come out with reports detailing thousands of extrajudicial executions, Man, um, yeah. uh, cases of starvation, of malnutrition. I think that to the credit of some of these uh, outlets that maybe before were trying to romanticize the Bolivarian revolution, this 21st century socialism that Chavez advocated, at the very least, I forgive them for, to some extent, compensating and accurately covering what's going on in on the ground. So the, yeah. the, the New York Times yesterday actually put out this fantastic article detailing how Maduro is uh, locking up people who try to provide accurate numbers on COVID because the government never, never, ever, ever tells the truth in terms of the numbers they provide, if it's Mm -hmm. economics, if it's anything, because there's no free press in Venezuela. So they repress uh, journalists. They arbitrarily detain individuals who are uh, caught violating curfew because now there are very strict curfew um, rules in place where even even with the sun up, 
you can't be caught in the street uh, leaving or failing to abide by quarantine. So they'll, they'll lock these people up and round them up. Of course, some of them can be bribed because honestly, money talks in Venezuela to a certain degree. Sure. But a lot of people just don't have that money and people need to work to survive. And so if you're forcing people who don't have that work from home option, then you're essentially asking them to starve. Now, going back to something that you had asked before in terms of the celebrities, celebrities, um, I, I have a lot of contempt for the, the political bend to Hollywood as a whole. Um, I think it's really disgraceful that they will feign this sort of moral superiority and at the same time willingly, voluntarily omit the sort of human rights violations that are going on in other parts of the world. And I don't know yeah. if it's because they want to demonize the, um, what's going on here in the country. And we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, no, but, no. To, yeah. but to set up this sort of false equivalency, I think does a grave disservice to those on the ground that are con on a regular basis suffering these sort of existential crises. Now, to the, to, the, um, to the credit of some individuals, like Leo DiCaprio, for example, Leo DiCaprio is somebody who um, I might not agree with politically on everything, but... I respect that he practices what he preaches insofar as speaking out um, against what's going on in Venezuela. He, he put on his Instagram the other day that there, um, there's such a lack of shortage of water. Venezuela actually has the largest, ninth largest fresh water or, level, or amount of fresh water resources in the world. Wow. But most people don't have regular drinking water. So then, uh, people in Caracas, the capital city, have to take matters into their own hands and dig up tunnels in order to uh, basically get uh, fresh drinking water. And again, that information is out there, folks. If you want to look at international news outlets like DW News in Germany, France 24 in France, BBC in England, they've created videos where journalists are on the ground, perhaps not right now, but from 2019, early 2020. And it's documented. It's there in your very eyes. In fact, if you want to go to my Instagram later, I'll just do my little plug in here. Yeah, we'll get some at, links underneath the video. Yeah, go th ahead. Thank you. Yeah, State of Venezuela, the last video that I put was in my hometown of Maracaibo, which is the second largest city in Venezuela. You have kids as young as 11 fending for themselves, um, going into trash piles to look for something to eat. I mean, that's, that's the level of, um, of existential crises that the people have been reduced to. Um, mm. And it's really no way to live at all. No, no, we're talking, and, and here's, here's some of the, uh, you mentioned like a word like contempt, and it's, 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 it's not only that, it's, it's genuinely sad, it's, it's frustrating, it's sad, it's so many things, because whatever the efforts, or whatever the reasons for the efforts to sort of uh, assuage uh, one's own personal guilt, or to, to try and romanticize what's happening elsewhere, uh, those that are most harmed, it's, it's women and children, that's what's yes. terrible. And, and it's like, you're literally, um, because of verbal rhetorical games and assuaging your guilt or whatever it is, spoken virtue, you are willing to look the other way and speak virtue to people that are literally destroying women and children most, you know, I mean, sure men, but especially women and children. That is, that is, uh, it's tremendously sad and it's tremendously frustrating. <laughs> it's both. 
Yeah. yeah women actually, um, I think the Instagram account hearts on Venezuela, which is another one I would highly recommend. They do a great job of providing information on Venezuela in English. They've been around for a bit longer than I have. So they have these little infographics that have become super popular on Instagram that are shareable. And yeah, they did a, uh, they did like a sort of special on the, on just how particularly affected women are and children, as you mentioned. And you're right, Adam. It is particularly frustrating because um, the, the next question you might ask naturally is, okay, what can I do to help? How can I help? Well, the Maduro dictatorship has already shown that it's only going to accept aid with an ideological bend or with a political purpose. So the United Nations is not on the ground. The Red Cross um, has done next to nothing. The United Nations, uh, as far as their Department on Refugees, has given maybe I think a, a one ninth of what they've given to refugees in Syria, despite the fact that we are gradually and very closely approaching the numbers of refugees that have left the country in Syria from Venezuela. Mm -hmm. And another frustrating fact here uh, to tell your listeners, Adam, that I'm not sure if they know, or even if you know, are you familiar, Adam, with the United Nations Human Rights Council? Yes. Yeah. Venezuela last year in December, after a visit from the United Nations High Commissioner of Human Rights, who had just gone and completed a report that details some of the grave human rights violations that I've spoken on, uh, extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings, um, instances of torture of police forces, police forces contributing to and committing these sorts of tortures. Mm -hmm. Venezuela, in spite of all that, was able to win a seat on the Human Rights Council, which is basically like making a pyromaniac the fire marshal of a city. Yeah, and this is actually one of the main reasons. It's not to say, I assume they had like a, a human rights like department or some sort of a staff or a focus within, but I, I, th I think that fact right there is the main reason it was put on my radar is that, yeah, this, it, it felt like a, just a total exercise in hubris and, and all the rest where it's like, uh, yeah, uh, w they have to know it's wrong, but they also don't have to care. I saw the same thing. It's different. And um, I don't have, I need to get someone on to talk about the Uyghur situation in China because I don't totally understand all of it but I there was a, a clip that went around kind of viral for a moment where um, one of their um, diplomats was on the BBC and he, the interviewer pulled up it's an older video but it just for whatever reason went viral again and it's Uyghurs just sitting on the sidewalk shaved heads getting loaded up on trains it has all of the tellings of what we see in anything we have from Holocaust stories and film right and whether or not it's exactly the same thing's happening, it's it's a human rights violation to the core, right? Right. And he has this guy on, in a, a diplomat, right, from China, and he totally boldface just skirt, skirts the whole thing. And what was shocking was it was shocking that he did it, right? That he just avoided the whole question and conversation. But it was shocking that he knew he had permission to do it. That was more shocking to me. He knew mm -hmm. he could do it and get away with it in public, and there would be little to no ramifications ramifications it went viral for like two seconds but who gives a rip it's, it's basically gone some people yeah. probably haven't even heard of it and he didn't care he knew he knew he could do it and in the same way exactly that when that happened where they elected like you said essentially a pyromaniac it's not funny i shouldn't laugh it's really sad uh, well you could laugh at the you could laugh yeah, at the irony the absolutely yeah. yeah yeah but it it uh the tragedy of it is it's like 
not only did they do it, that's sad enough, but that they knew they could get away with it and it wouldn't really matter much. It's like, that's like, what, what a world, man. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's really sad because as you point out the same way that this, um, the clip, I, I think I'd, I'd seen a little bit of it and it is disappointing because the Chinese communist party in the same way that, by the way, it's a huge ally of the, um, of the of the of Chavez Maduro and his Socialist Party in Venezuela, all, yeah. albeit for different reasons, it's more of a transactional relationship. But okay. they're an ally nonetheless, and they they share that sort of immunity from condemnation at large. Because again, I don't see the NBA talking about it. I don't see Hollywood talking about it, and it, it does get uh, to be sort of frustrating because. It allows for them to use these platforms to legitimize themselves and people will start to believe it because they're not being challenged enough otherwise. That's why, yeah. again, that, that goes back to why I'm doing this podcast. I'm sure that there are probably, there, there's probably someone of Uyghur descent, um, or at least I hope, that's you know actively trying to fight this sort of disinformation campaign. But it's very, very difficult, Adam, because you're talking about individuals who – they care more about staying in power and not relinquishing it than what they can do with that power to serve the needs of their people. So a lot of the resources dwindling, I, I have to add, especially in the case of Venezuela, a lot of that they're, they're pulling out from the coffers of the country and they're pouring it into outlets like Russia Today, which is a state yeah. uh, news outlet in Russia. A lot of people tend to like it because it has a very um, – anti-imperialist regime change type of uh, bend to it but people forget this is this is curated and tailored by the russian state, state so yeah exactly right, exactly right. so yeah. they they have a stake in all of this um this, the same way that you'll see in outlets like cgtn which is in uh in china there are other outlets that um that work very closely with journalists that some of them are independent, but they're paid under the table by these governments to basically clean what should otherwise be a very tarnished image of these regimes. And it allows them to legitimize them in very clever ways by either you know, creating a straw man, gaslighting, as we, had, as we had pointed out earlier. But it always serves at the end of the day to try and skirt the issue away from what's really going on. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. And um, yeah, and, and I, I want to be clear too, um, before we transition to some of the geopolitical convergences, um, that, uh, that there are, I think you could chalk up, like you said earlier, don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence or just ignorance at some level, right? Willful ignorance is different, but just a, a common sense or like a, a common understanding of ignorance didn't know any better. There's a lot of that that happens. I think people oftentimes want to believe the best about others. They want to believe the best. And, and so the public narrative is such that it's like, well, maybe there's a, it's too complex. It's foreign to me. I don't understand. But people are generally pretty good, so they just kind of go with it. And uh, so I want to give some, I don't know, throw a bone there that there's some of that going on. But Absolutely. there's enough. There's the, this, the hard part and the reason why people need to engage with shows like yours, Raphael, and others um, that are doing this to kind of work is you, you can't expect this information to come to you. You really have to go uh, seek it out in some respects, especially when it's a foreign thing, but it's as complex as it is too. Um, but you, you really have to go seek it out because you're going to be catching 
sort of the, the third hand spun version of it at some point, it's going to have a moralistic or opinion baked in. And uh, yeah, you, you really got to go find it. And so I hope people go find your show. Uh, one more plug there. But um, also, uh, let's talk before I want to talk about two more things. I want to talk about this kind of geopolitical convergence that's happening on Venezuela. Why? I mean, it's not just uh, it's it's <laughs> It seems like every region of the world has some sort of stake, including the West and the United States, some sort of stake in, say, in Venezuela. Uh, why is that? What's going on there? And then I do want to try and wrap up. Um, what kind of an impact does it have or what kind of are there overlaps and correlations between what's happening there and maybe what's happening in the U.S. or wants to happen in the U.S. or whatever? Right. Um, so because you've mentioned this term. Uh, Chavez, I believe, brought about this 21st century socialism or sort of right. a modern socialism. And there's so much talk about that in the West right now, in particular, the United States is playing with it. So I, I don't know if there's convergences there as well. So let's talk about oh, that. Oh, there again. is 100%. Let's, yeah. Let's wrap up there. But before we get there, why is everyone and their mother trying to have influence and a stake in Venezuela right now from, from Russia, like you said, to China, to Iran, and the U.S. has some say, like, why is everyone involved? What's going on? Well, it's a twofold answer for sure. Number one, um, and this is the one that I always get oil so fun fact venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves more than mm -hmm. saudi arabia more than qatar more than anywhere else in the middle east by far wow yes however the first accusation that people might get because of the united states involvement in the iraq war is oh well that's probably why the united states is interested however it's not for two reasons number one because the united states is now the world's largest export of oil so it doesn't really need that, uh, that number of reserves. They have oil interests in, or we, I should say, as a Venezuelan American, the United States has interests in, 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 uh, in the Middle East to, um, to avoid any sort of reliance on Venezuelan oil. Mm -hmm. How, um, the flip side to that, however, is that Russia and China do have a stake on Venezuela's natural resources. Mm -hmm. um, Russia in particular has always wanted to use Venezuela as sort of a backyard to prevent or, or a platform from which to project its power onto Washington from a very short distance because Caracas have a proxy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's only a four hour uh, plane ride from Miami. Um, and so Russia is I, I know that's it's sort of a hot button issue right now in the United States, but mm -hmm. it, it's almost it's, it's almost impossible to um, to assert with real certainty any sort of collusion between the United States and Russia because you look at a case like Venezuela where Venezuela right now is dealing with an issue of two different presidents. One is the interim president, which is Juan Guaido, and then is and the second one is the dictator, Nicolas Maduro, who has failed to relinquish control from power uh, since after having failed to uh, recognize the the flawed results of the 2018 election. And if I, and if I could, Adam, uh, I want to quickly explain to your listeners uh, one of the biggest other misconceptions that I get about the political situation in Venezuela right now. Yeah, a lot of people both. say, yeah. hey, are there two why, – why is it that right now we have – you guys have two presidents? That's not the case at all. So I'd like to present to you a really, really good analogy that I saw from uh, David Lunau, who is the Latin America uh, bureau chief, I believe, or editor for the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. And I'll read this to you aloud. Basically, he says, 
that there are some politicians and folks on the left, particularly in the United States, Europe, and Latin America, who wonder if what is happening in Venezuela is a coup against the de facto president, Nicolas Maduro. So he points out this analogy that might help out. And it says, imagine a world where Donald Trump, U.S. president, stacks the Supreme Court and other institutions with political hacks, basically like loyalists. The midterms come and Democrats win a resounding two-thirds majority in Congress. In reaction, Trump is stunned and he gets courts to declare Congress null and void and basically just ignores its decisions. Then Trump creates another Congress, basically like a separate Congress, filled with his own supporters to pass laws. And when there are street protests against this, naturally, he's, in response, he sends out the National Guard to crack down. And as a result, there are over 100 people that are killed by security forces and thousands more that are arbitrarily detained. Then top Democratic leaders, which would be the opposition, are arrested or forced into exile. And some, as I had mentioned earlier, are tortured. Trump then heads for re-election, but his administration bars any top Democrat from running. The Democrats boycott the election in response. Trump holds it anyway and wins. There are no credible observers uh, in, from the international community that are allowed to observe the results of the election. Even the guy who sets up the electronic voting system says that there are episodes of fraud, very clear fraud. Trump is sworn in by this fake Congress that I told you he created earlier. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the real Congress says that he's an illegitimate president because you know he broke the, the rules, very yeah. clear signs of electoral farce. And according to law, they swear in the head of Congress as the legitimate president until new elections can be held. And that interim president is recognized by 60 countries around the world. So is that a coup by the real Congress or has the coup already taken place by the president. And in a nutshell, that's what happened in Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is, well, and it's a helpful analogy because I think if you localize it like that, and it's not just two people that I don't really have a great awareness of, so it's hard for me to have a, a good, bad, whatever, neutral opinion about them. When you're talking about a local thing, like uh, plenty of people, if that were the case, would have a very strong opinion. Um, if exactly. Trump were to do such a thing, but that is, more than immoral, it's a tragedy and an atrocity. Yeah, and so going back to um, to your original question, that sort of um, there's a convergence on one end, but there's also a divergence in the others, where you have okay. basically the world's democracies. It's a coalition of democratic countries with democratic institutions everywhere from the United States, New Zealand, Australia, Morocco, most of Europe, most of South America, Canada. Um, all those countries recognize Juan Guaido, who was president of the National Assembly, who, because of an article in the Constitution, again, said, all right, there's a vacancy in the presidency because it was an electoral farce. So I'm next in line, and I'm just asserting my right to be the interim president until free and fair elections can be held. Mm -hmm. However, because of the pre-existing interests I mentioned earlier, countries like Iran, Russia, Cuba, China, they don't recognize that, and they choose instead to recognize Nicolas Maduro as still being the president, despite the very obvious signs that that election did not meet international standards. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that, that, that divergence, sort of wrap up on that question there, means that they have more at stake to lose because in a Juan Guaido administration where he he you know, assert 
assumes the right to be in the presidential palace. So again, this also dispels this idea that this guy was handpicked by the United States or the CIA to you know, institute regime change or whatever, because the guy was already there. Um, once he goes there, Russia will lose its position in, in the Western hemisphere okay. to assert its power. China will lose on uh, a ton of different oil deals that were, um, that were struck during uh, the time that this fake Congress that, uh, that Maduro created uh, signed into law. Because once Juan Guaido comes in, one of the first steps he's going to take is get rid of this deal. fake Congress. Yeah. Exactly. So there's money at stake. There's influence at stake. And then lastly, and most importantly, Cuba. Cuba has been trying to, and this actually is a natural uh, leading into the, the other question about socialism. Yeah. Cuba has had its foot in Venezuela for a very long time. In 1991, after the, yeah, after the fall yeah. of the Soviet Union, Adam, if you'll remember, Cuba depended very heavily on the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Once it fell, it was left exposed and it, and it spent this decade. Um, there's a, there's a word, there's a period in, uh, I forgot the word in English, but basically in Spanish, it's like the, the great depression almost in the nineties because Cuba was left exposed and had no one to leech off from basically. Right. And then Hugo Chavez comes in and he became sort of a prodigy of Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro once Chavez was broken out of prison in 1994 after having to try or having tried um, overthrowing the president of Venezuela at the time with a coup, did it twice actually. He's, he was uh, taken out of jail and the first stop he makes is to Cuba. Talks to Fidel Castro and Fidel Castro says, all right, look, I know you guys are trying to do what you did in Cuba, but it's not going to work. You guys have, uh, you're too big of a country. You have too many, your, your military doesn't trust you. It's trying to serve the country. So infiltrate the military and basically make sure that they believe in this ideology so that they answer to you and not to the country. And so Cuba wow. has this hand in doing so, especially after the coup in 2003, where Chavez is like, okay, I never want to go through that again. So he basically reinvents the uh, what we would call like the FBI and the CIA. And he makes them basically answer to the regime and not to the country because they're not independent institutions. So mm -hmm. then he brings in all of these Cuban generals, Cuban agents, um, the OAS, which is like um, it's like an inter-American institution, kind of like the, the UN, but just for the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. They estimate that there are about 20,000 Cuban uh, intelligence units inside of Venezuela that actively Jeez. monitor – the you know the soldiers they monitor mm -hmm. all these institutions to make sure that everything is going smoothly according to their view and the reason they do it is because for the longest time and even now still venezuela heavily subsidizes oil which means that they they give you know the oil to them for pennies on the dollar so it's like a domino effect right if the if the maduro regime falls cuba is again exposed and they have no one to leech off of so they have a lot at stake and in exchange for all that oil, Maduro and his people have been using that Cuban security to the point where the people that uh, surround Maduro's security detail, they're not Venezuelans, they're Cubans. That's how much he, you know, he trusts the Cubans with this stuff. So yeah. they're the ones who have, they're not the most important ally on a geopolitical perspective, but for the, for the existence of the regime, they absolutely are because if they fall, then naturally, without the resources to leech off of, Cuba and its communist regime will fall as well. Yeah, yeah, it's like symbiotic. Like, yeah, they're they're fully dependent on each yes. other. Yes. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea about that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's transition a little bit because um, it's fascinating. I don't I don't know if this is the most helpful illustration, but <laughs> there was a it, and I don't know how many of my listeners uh, actually follow the UFC, but <laughs> someone asked. I don't even remember why they asked, but they asked Jorge Masvidal, um, who lives in Miami. He's a fighter within the UFC, and he's from Cuba, right? And they asked him, uh, who, who are you voting for, essentially? And he more or less said, I, I don't really want to tell you that. Um, but he followed it up by saying, um, I don't want to tell you that, but I can tell you this, that, you know, anyone from my like neighborhood and anyone from my house would never vote for anyone that had the word, for whatever reason, had the word socialist in their agenda. And uh and again, it was it was kind of a shocker. He's you know he's he's been critical of Trump in some ways or whatever at times. But uh, anyway, to say that he was like that would never happen. And the re and I've heard that from so many people that have migrated from not just Cuba but um, socialist countries. That with the I don't care if you have the best of intentions, if you put that word in either your platform or your party, there's some real problems there. Um, and that doesn't mean that every idea is only ever wrong. But the the uh, yeah, anyway, these, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating that migrants will say that almost carte blanche. It doesn't make them like red meat conservatives, but it does right. mean that they have a, a hard stance against that too. So um, anyway, I don't know if that's a helpful illustration, but is that your experience as far as like people that have migrated from countries like this? And then what, what are the overlaps and the corollaries, like we said? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely on point, Adam. Um, so I can speak to my experience as a Venezuelan American. Um, when it comes to my own views on American politics, I try and be as nuanced as possible. I think that a lot of people ascribe to this sort of tribalism that does no good right. in trying to actually get issues resolved because they, you know, they spend time arguing over the most uh, the most redundant of details. Uh, so even even in the case of President Trump, uh, you know, you have your people who are always Trump. You have your people who are never Trump. Um, I like to find myself as somebody who says I'm sometimes Trump. Yeah, uh, the best yeah. example for that would be, hey, I love the fact that he has taken such a hardline stance against the Maduro regime. Um, he's taken a much more aggressive approach to trying to topple the regime and advance the restoration of democracy in the country than his, than his predecessor or the predecessor before him. So in that respect, Venezuelans are very much in favor of keeping um, this current administration in power. Now, when it comes to the greater, um, the greater question of socialism, you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of Venezuelans who see a Biden administration as a sort of as a sort of Trojan horse for socialism. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't come from him specifically because I've done my research on Joe Biden. Um, I, I even voted for Obama in 2008. So I was generally supportive of that administration. And so I'm familiar with his policies. He's spoken out against both socialism and its uh, democratic socialism um, counterpart or, um, or subsidiary, we can say. Yeah. That being said, what scares most Venezuelans about this Biden administration is the people that he has around him. There are people that, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. Uh, there are individuals within the party itself, uh, more in the sort of extreme wing of the party that I've heard. I mean, the, the statements there are public, despite everything that we've talked about in this podcast, 
or in this episode, in this conversation, we can say, um, they continue to spout the same rhetoric of regime change, sanctions, what's going on in Venezuela is not their fault. It wasn't real socialism, ABC. And Venezuelans, they get upset about that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it deprives us of our own agency to speak on our own behalf. Right. And that's why you're not going to really see any Venezuelans speaking loudly for, um, for those ideas. Although there are Venezuelans who are in favor of Biden because they make this, uh, they make this argument that the sort of populist rhetoric that comes from President Trump is very similar to the populism that was, uh, that was reflective or vivified by Hugo Chavez. Um, I don't know to what, to what extent I would agree with that. I think there's certainly some truth to it, but that's, um, that's a conversation all in, in itself. Yeah. Uh, the, the question of socialism, however, it, it's sort of like a PTSD for a lot of Venezuelans. Uh, and the question is, you know, why would you vote for the same policies from which you fled? Those policies of rent control, of, hmm. um, of expropriation, of basically being, uh, being coddled by the government because we've seen firsthand what that does, not just to the economics of the country, but most importantly to the mentality, to the modus operandi of the, yeah. uh, of the citizens. In fact, a lot of immigrants that leave the country, that leave Venezuela, that go to Cuba, that no, not them go to Cuba, scratch that. They go to Colombia, they go to mm-hmm. Peru. Um, I have friends from Cuba. Why am I making that same mistake twice? That I have friends from, <laughs> from Colombia, Colombia. Yeah, yeah. from Peru, and they say that some of the Venezuelans that arrive, they, they, they wonder, you know, why isn't the state taking care of me? Where are my benefits? Hmm. Where, where is this? Where is that? Why is, the, why is the government not taking care of me like it took care of me in Venezuela? And it's because they've been psychologically conditioned to believe that the, the well-being, the welfare of these individuals is entirely contingent on the efficacy of the state when we as a country are not built to operate in that capacity. We are very much believers of individuality, of self-determination, and we believe that having those ideas um, encroach the really the a lot of the premises of the premises of a major party platform is it's concerning, and I think that there there aren't enough moderate Democrats that are speaking out against this sort of thing, and I think mm-hmm. the less they do so, the more Venezuelans are going to be inclined to look the other way, regardless of whatever misgivings they may find in a Trump administration. Yeah, maybe like the the uh, the metaphor is like people who are plugging their nose and voting, right? And so, yeah, I mean, there's going. There will be some of that, and the unfortunate thing is, is that uh, if if moderates on either side, well, let's say to your example, if like a moderate left person or Democrat were to to speak up and just be just have like the smallest tincture of nuance about these kind of topics, it would be a breath of fresh air because people don't want to plug their nose and <laughs> and vote. They don't want to plug their nose and play with politics. They want to like they want someone who's more representative of them, not a caricature, right? And so. Mm-hmm. Um, if all they have is caricatures, all they can do is plug their nose and go for it. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. and, yeah, we're in this space right now, and Trump has participated in exacerbating it, that's for sure, in, in some ways. But um, we're in this space right now where people are more or less just voting and playing with politics for what they're against rather than anything to do with what they're for, right? 
Exactly. There is a lot of that going on for sure. And um, to where, yeah, you can overlook the, uh, the countless, uh, you know, not, there's specific examples, but the countless iterations of socialism around the world. And then to have the hubris to say, either that's not real socialism, like you said, or I think we could try it again and get it better. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson has this idea when, he, when that comes up and he's like, what, what you're essentially saying is, I could do it better, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and I, could, I, could, I could get this right. And you're presuming um, that you, it's the height of arrogance to presume that because not only can you not, you know, most likely, but also you're assuming that this, this system doesn't cater to um, sociopathic types that can and will do anything they want to hold that power, right? And so, yeah, it, it, it sets you up really, really bad. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, I think. And that yes. is so much of what's going on there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, let's do this, though. You talked about, and I mentioned the need for nuance and, and all the rest. So um, I'm, I'm trying to think the best way to wrap up here. But there's got to be, what's the, is there an olive branch here? Is there solutions here to some of this? Especially whether it's what's going on in Venezuela or what's as, similar ideologies creep up or pop up in the West in the United States where you and I live. Are there olive branches here? Are there connecting points? Like what are the bridges that we can have between each other? And it, not to say that we're going to agree with, on everything, but what are the ways we could have these conversations to maybe change hearts and minds, you know, rather than doing us versus them games of just sure. caricatures and stereotypes of people? Yeah. What, what, in your opinion, what is that? So it's i uh, I'll give you a twofold response. I think, um, on the question of Venezuela itself, I think that um, when it comes to socialism, I think it's very important that people understand that, yes, it did unequivocally contribute to the collapse of the country. There's no mistake about it. However, I'm not in favor of using us as a case study for why socialism fails because what that does is it takes away from the other elements that have equally contributed to the, um, mm. to the collapse of the country, particularly that convergence of elements that, um, that make up the alliances of the regime. Because if this were a purely socialist regime, this uh, it should have fallen a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it does explain the economic collapse to be sure, but not the collapse of the regime itself. Because again, it's being propped up by these um, by these external actors and because it has become heavily military, militarized. I mean, just to give you an idea, we see how North Korea has converted all its institutions into essentially subsidiaries of the armed forces. And Venezuela, it's not, not that different at all. We have hundreds of generals, more, way more than, uh, than the amount of the United States, and they all uh, take from the spoils of the country. And because the country right now doesn't produce enough oil to sustain the welfare of its people, they've received that money through other illicit activities like illegal gold mining, drug trafficking, and so if we just focus on the socialism element, then it takes away from acknowledging those equally important factors, mm -hmm. and it comes at the expense of the full conversation. And Great distinction. I, yeah, thank you, Raphael. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. And the, and the other thing, Adam, is um, 
when it comes to the Venezuela situation, I think we need to see it for what it is. And that comes with two things. Number one is identifying the center of gravity. As my last guest in my last, um, in my last episode talks about, I, I spoke with a, uh, with a global security expert where we talked about the interference of Iran and of Hezbollah in Venezuela, mm-hmm. which might seem hard to believe at first, but I promise you it's there. And I highly recommend uh, your listeners check it out because it was a fascinating discussion. Yeah. So understanding what the center of gravity is for this regime is understanding their ability to stay alive. Number one, it's because of that disinformation campaign that has been so successful over the past 10, 10 20 years. And number two, understanding that this yes the socialism element is very very important i'm not going to disagree with that but we have to look at it as a crime syndicate this is a, a crime syndicate that ha- that is responsible for f- for flushing um arms trafficking drug trafficking not just throughout uh, its immediate region but in the united states it's it's sort of like narcos 2.0 it yeah. really is. Okay. And, and the military um, is, facilitates the, the operation itself. And there are other countries involved and other countries that are, are contributing to the uh, continuance of, that, uh, of these different operations. And the, lo- the longer that this extends, the more people that are going to leave the country, and that's going to have a disastrous effect on the region at large. And, and the reason I think that Americans should care is because South America and Central America, more so than Europe even, are more identifiable allies of the United States. We all come from the same new world. We both were founded on this premise that we are, we are nations under God. That's why th- these, these countries are predominantly either Christian or Catholic. So right. the morals, the values are the exact same. And there's no reason why that sort of uh, brotherhood should not continue to flourish. I believe that we are stronger as a hemisphere than we are allowing these sorts of regimes to to uh, sort of metastasize at the expense of the flourishing of democracies around us. Because this is this is a project, a very this is an evil project. I have to say, and it's a project yeah. that wants to win. They, their end game is to essentially topple what they see as the success of anti-imperialism and um, replacing everything that we stand for with a sort of a sense of criminality that is done under the guise of collectivism under the guise of of advancing advancing the few but what that does is it exacerbates that us versus them mentality and from an Mm -hmm. economic standpoint pushes this idea of equality of outcome as opposed to equality of opportunity Mm -hmm. so counteracting it and showing that um, we can be a force for good in this hemisphere i think is very very important because again we have much more in common with our Southern and Central American counterparts than we do with the rest of the world. So understanding that I think also does a net service to the, uh, to the, to the, to the immigration that comes into the country. I think it would help with, it would help with assimilating too. I think if we understood some of the, like the reasons why people are coming in the first place, I think cohabitation coexistence would be much, uh, much more feasible. Right. And and I say that seeing what's going on in Venezuela, where there there are these countries like Peru, like Ecuador, which are like 
a fourth the size of the United States, not even, and they're having to take a mass influx of immigrants with whom they share the same language to a, to a degree, similar customs, and they're equally frustrated because they have no idea how to bring them in. So mm. help, helping curtail that, rebuild uh, Venezuela you know, as a collective uh, effort would help curtail maybe even some of the immigration coming into our country. And I say that in, in like with a positive connotation because- well, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it would also help bridge the gap between of understanding between uh, communities here in the United States. And we'll find at the end of the day that there's a lot more in common than, than what we have uh, that distinguishes us. I don't, I'm not a big fan of the fact that there's, there are these radical ideologies, these anti-racist ideologies that want to emphasize our, our differences and not so much what makes us equal. Because at the end of the day, we all appreciate human rights. We all want, um, you know, we all want what's good for the collective good. And mm. seeing that with the same lens in Venezuela helps us recognize the egregious human rights violations that are going on in the country. And at the end of the day, the first step of solving any problem is recognizing that there is one. Yeah, that's huge. That is huge. Yeah, and, and we need to make some good faith efforts. And it will take... I think, and here's the deal, at the, at the level of like public and the loud versions of this, it's not happening as much. I mean, Ibram Kendi just got $10 million from Jack from Twitter, right? And, and so I saw that. a lot of that noise will continue, but that's, that's sort of the popular level. There is, you'll see in conversations in your neighborhood with, with friends, even friends you, or acquaintances and whatever, classmates, wherever you're at, people that you profoundly disagree with, but you also have um, a majority of agreement, like you said. You, you may, you, you 100% agree that human rights matter and you have some nuance and some distinctions about how you go about bringing that, but you agree on principles, you know? And so it's like this, this idea that we are, um, or so much of the ideas out there right now, they do, they, I think it's training ground. I think, it, I really think they're trying that I don't, I don't mean they, but I think there's an, an effort to do so much of even our modern politic right now that is essentially, um, in the church, we have liturgies, right? And we have like these religious like rites and like, you gather on Sundays and you do these different things mm -hmm. in part to sort of give yourself like a soul training, you know? Um, and there is almost a soul training that's going on with politics right now that tries to reduce us to think that every, every topic, every person, everything is a binary choice and is good people versus bad guys. And it's, it's, it, uh, yeah, it reduces us into these monoliths, you know, and robs us of our agency, like you said before, which we should never do to other people. We should talk exactly. to people as an individual. And to give a little bit of a pastor's plug, I know this isn't the way things tend to go at the geopolitical level, especially when there's that much um, injustices, like is what is ex existing in Venezuela right now. I hope something can come about that is nonviolent in some way, shape or form. I have no idea if that's ever possible with what's going on. But yeah. Man, that would be my hope. I don't know, though. <laughs> That's probably my Western wishful thinking, you know, whatever. But, but yeah. Um, anyway, anything that we missed, anything that you feel like you want to you wanna say as a send-off? Yeah, um, I guess the, the last thing that I would point out for, uh, for your listeners is, yeah, if, if you can, um, 
try and take this as a learning opportunity to, if you, if you have any questions, I guarantee you that Venezuelans, um, I don't know how many there are in the country right now, but there are a lot of younger Venezuelan students, young adults who unfortunately have had to face, I didn't thankfully in my own university, but I'm very aware of the, of the uh, sort of encroaching of these sort of postmodernism ideologies that are coming at the expense of people's agency and are also, you know, telling people, young Venezuelans firsthand, that they're wrong about what's going on in their country. Don't fall for that. I promise if you ask them, we're, we're willing to engage. We really are. Um, that's, why I'm, that's why I was more than happy to even come on this, episode, on this, uh, on this show in the first place yeah. because I love talking about this stuff. And I think that not knowing that that's okay. It's okay. You know, intentions matter. Yeah, regardless yeah. of what, regardless of what, uh, what anybody might say, intentions matter. If you have some sort of way of thinking about something where you say, well, I thought it was sanctions. We're not going to demonize you. If you heard it from somewhere else, we'll say, well, look, let me tell you what's actually going on. Um, it's about this sort of intellectual humility, this sort of intellectual honesty. It's okay to not know what you're talking about. Don't, don't feel compelled to speak um, on something that you don't know about. And, and I promise you that it will yield greater results when you want to try and understand something, whether it be the situation in Venezuela, the situation with the Uyghurs in China. Um, I mean, we're out there. And, you know, just again, look at it for what it is. This is a situation where millions of people have had to leave the country because of egregious human rights violations. And yeah, unfortunately, there isn't a, uh, an immediate so solution. But part of that solution might come from a greater understanding because that's what this regime thrives on. It thrives on the omission of information. And I think counteracting that, like I'm doing with my podcast as hard as I can, will come at the expense of their ability to poison the well. So with that, I want to also plug in um, my podcast. It's, again, it's called The State of Venezuela. Uh, I'm six episodes in right now, so we're just getting started. I actually have a seventh one coming out today where I speak about the parallels between uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua because Nicaragua is a country mm. that's getting even less information uh, put out there than we are. Um, and it was a state of patronage that got billions of dollars from the Venezuelan government under Hugo Chavez to survive. It was sort of like an oil exchange where we needed to launder money. So we provided them with this sort of slush fund, we could say, mm -hmm. that dried up and that drying up of funds, uh, long story short, led to pension cuts in Nicaragua. Pension cuts left to protest, protests left to, to repression, and the rest is history. But if you want to learn more about that, um, I'm going to be talking a lot more about the sanctions, misinformation, Iran's role, Cuba's role, China's role, um, testimony from students that have come from the country, and they can tell you firsthand what they've gone through and some of the misunderstandings that they've had to confront at the university level and just on a general level. And again, they're more than happy to speak to you. I'm more than happy to speak to you. So uh, yeah, please feel free to listen and I guarantee you'll come out learning something. Yeah, yeah. And, and as far as my opinion goes, whatever it's worth, people should um, like, subscribe, et cetera, rate, rank, whatever you're supposed to do, comment on your show on Apple Podcasts. And, and, and it's not available on other podcasting platforms or just Apple? It's on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. Okay. Yeah. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Cause honestly, after the first episode, I was like, this, this really matters. This is super important. Um, yeah. The, 
and especially when you share some of the mission about what you're trying to do with it, it is deeply important. I think everyone should listen to it, but also like it and rank it. That way you get noticed by others. So that would be good. But yeah, um, thank you so much, Raphael, for taking your time today. This is, it's been good just to get to know you in the first place, but to get to share your story a little bit and what you're up to is, I think it's important. So I appreciate you making time. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah. We'll catch you later. All right. Take care, you guys.